0: Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 40. Thank you, Pastor Al and Sheila, for that lovely time of worship. I invite all of you to join us next Sunday in the morning, same, same time, uh, for our kids' Christmas program. I'm just moving this over here. I was, had the privilege of being here this afternoon to run sound For them, while they rehearsed and practiced, and uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun, as it always is. See those little kids dressed up like sheep and shepherds and magi, and uh, it'll be it'll be a good time. So I'm looking forward to that. That'll be next Sunday morning, and then afterwards, of course, we'll have we'll have a potluck luncheon downstairs with our with our family. So we just invite all of you to come out and join with us for that. We're obviously in the middle of the Christmas season. And as we are getting ready to celebrate uh, Advent, the coming of our Lord, the first coming of our Lord, we are looking at a series of passages reflecting on His first coming and the hope and the assurance that that can give us as we go through whatever struggles, whatever trials we may experience in this life, knowing that because He made good on His promise to come the first time, we have every reason to expect and to have complete confidence that He is going to come for us again. So we're going to look at this passage here in Isaiah 40 this evening. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11. And this is a significant verse uh, prophesying the coming of the Messiah. If you would, look with me. Isaiah 40, we're going to go verses 1 to 11. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And sorry, the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He's promised it. It's going to happen. He has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, and say to the cities of Judah, Behold, your god behold the lord god comes with might and his in his arm rules for him behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him he will tend his flock like a shepherd he will gather the lambs in his arms he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young let's bow for a word of prayer father we love you we thank you so much for this word that you have given to us Father, we thank you for speaking through the prophet Isaiah so many thousands of years ago and telling us of the first coming of Christ and promising us here within this text that he will gather us together, that he will tenderly and gingerly bring his people together to be with him. We love you, God. We thank you for this amazing promise. I pray, Father, that as we see the comfort that you give here to Israel, I pray, Father, that if there are any here tonight who are needing encouragement or who are needing comfort from your hand, I pray, Almighty Father, that you would comfort and strengthen their hearts, that you would give them encouragement from this text this evening, Lord. And I pray that as we are gathered here tonight, God, that you would open our eyes and show us just exactly how it is that you bring comfort so that we would be equipped, Lord, as a people of comfort and encouragement, that we would know, having studied your example here in this text how to encourage and give real comfort to our friends and our family who are struggling with discouragement and who perhaps are looking at life with cynicism or skepticism. God, I pray, Father, that you would have your way among us tonight. We ask these things by the precious and most beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. I have had opportunity over the years to read a number of books detailing uh, in the States, the uh, horrible accounts of slavery, uh, and the way that plantation owners, particularly in the South, would uh, own men and women and, and use them for their own purposes, primarily labor, but for many other uh, sinister and evil and wicked and wicked things. And reading uh, biographies of slaves that were able to escape, uh, slaves that were able to secure their freedom, just reading their accounts of the trials that they endured when they went through slavery, It was quite, quite tragic, and the significant thing about it was they understood as slaves that they were owned by their slave owners, and it was really a hopeless situation. Kidnapped, imprisoned, taken from Africa, Africa brought over on the slave trading ships to the United States, sold into slavery. They didn't see any way of escape, and so it was largely a hopeless situation, One of the things that the plantation owners tried to do was to share the gospel with these slaves. And there's an African spiritual that dates from this time. It was first put to paper somewhere around the turn of the 20th century. I'm sure you've all heard it. It was fairly popular in the 60s and the 70s. Kumbaya, dear Lord, kumbaya. Kumbaya. It was an African spiritual dating back to the time of slavery in which they were saying in their own vernacular, come by here, Lord, come by here. Kumbaya, that's what that means. And the song goes, Kumbaya, dear Lord, kumbaya, stand by me. Kumbaya, dear Lord, kumbaya, come by me. Kumbaya, dear Lord, kumbaya, O Lord, stand by me. And then the last verse of that song Someone's praying, Lord, kumbaya. Someone's praying, come by here. Someone's praying, Lord, kumbaya. Someone's praying, Lord, kumbaya. Oh, Lord, kumbaya. They're asking God in this song to come and stand by them. They're looking to God for the comfort, for some encouragement, some hope to endure the misery of their situation. Now that song is helpful as we consider the first part of our text tonight in verse 40. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. You're to speak to them and to comfort them. They were asking God, the African, the individuals who were trapped in slavery were asking God to come and stand by them, that they could draw comfort from God. And the prophecy that Isaiah gives us here is that God is saying to Isaiah, comfort my people. Now, at this point in time, the situation is bleak for Israel. They have obviously lived in idolatry. They have rebelled repeatedly against God. They have now been dragged off. There are a series of exiles that take place. Obviously, the great one is to uh, Babylon here. It's most likely to Assyria. There's a a group that has been dragged off into captivity. And of course, Israel, Jerusalem, they are reeling from the warfare and from the fact that their nation is being invaded. And of course, God looking in the midst of this exile, the midst of these individuals being dragged off into captivity, his statement is, comfort them in the midst of all of this Comfort them. How are we to comfort them? He says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. They understood their situation was that they were being judged by God, that they were being punished by God. And God's statement to Isaiah is, I want you to bring comfort to them, and I want you to say to them, that he has punished them, that her warfare is over, he has poured out his wrath, which means that if God is satisfied regarding the punishment that he has inflicted on Israel, there is the hope then that maybe he might begin the process of ransoming them and rescuing them from their exile. The comfort that the prophet Isaiah is being instructed to give to the Jews who have been dragged off into captivity is, God has punished you, it's over now. That's the comfort. Now, if you consider the various passages in the Bible, when people are in dark and difficult situations, they need to have some way of hoping in a brighter future. That's how we're all comforted. I'll Give you a couple of different examples of this in Genesis twenty-seven forty-two. Don't don't flip there. Um, Jacob has obviously tricked Esau. He has tricked uh, his father into giving him Esau's birthright. You'll know. Esau, you'll remember that Esau is the firstborn. Jacob is the secondborn. Esau should get the birthright of the firstborn. But Jacob, you know, he conspires with his mother, and he goes in and he puts. Uh, goat skin, sheep skin on his arms, and his dad is blind, and he can't see real well, and he kind of feels him, and he says, you know, you sound like Jacob, but you feel like Esau, and so he ends up giving uh, Jacob, his, uh, his firstborn son, Esau, his birthright. Esau finds out about it, and he's very angry, although, to be fair, he had traded it away previously for a bowl of soup. A bowl of chili, but that all kind of got set to the side. Now he's angry because Jacob has actually snookered his dad out of, out of giving him his birthright. Rebekah comes to her uh, son and she says to him, uh, <clears throat> this is from Genesis 27, 42, the words of Esau. Esau had said, I'm going to kill Jacob. I'm going to kill him. The words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and she called Jacob her younger son, and she said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. That's how he comforted himself. If my father dies and gives my inheritance to my younger brother and I want that inheritance, well, if I kill him then the inheritance has to come to me. So how am I going to get the inheritance? I'm going to kill my brother. Now, this is the plan that Esau comes up with. Now, Rebecca's spoiling that plan. She's going to send Jacob off, of course, and he's going to run away. But he is thinking about the future and coming up with a plan of how he can change his future and then his confidence in that brighter future, which he's going to achieve for himself, that gives him hope, that comforts him. Okay? Now you say, but that's pretty diabolical. The idea is still there, that if we believe that the future is going to be brighter or better, we draw comfort from that. You'll notice this is also emphasized in the New Testament. Don't flip there, just le- listen. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writing to the church at Corinth, and we all recall the church at Corinth, church that had some struggles, to, you know, not to understate it too badly, and he makes this statement for this church that has all kinds of different struggles and difficulties. He says, writing to them in this letter, 2 Corinthians, Our hope, him and his fellow missionaries, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Now he mentions the word comfort there, but the sentence he's just offered to the church at Corinth isn't a particularly comforting sentence. He says, when you guys suffer the way we suffer, then you'll be comforted the way we're comforted. Now, if you're the church at Corinth and you hear that, you're thinking, oh man, we're going to, we're about to suffer. That doesn't sound very good. You're not comforted by that statement. But Paul is. That's the point I want you to see from this verse. He says, our hope for you is unshaken. He says, "I, I am happy about your future because you're about to suffer. that seems a little twisted for you and me. But he is saying, when you do suffer, then you will experience the same comfort that we experience. So Paul is making the statement there that he is encouraged, he has hope, he is strengthened by the knowledge that the church at Corinth will experience the comfort of God once they go through this difficult situation of suffering. Last verse I want to give you, Romans 5, 3 through 4. Paul writing the church at Rome He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, that is, the present trials and the difficulties that we go through, we rejoice in those things, knowing, in other words, he has a knowledge about what's happening in the midst of those sufferings, and that knowledge enables him to then find joy and to rejoice in it. He says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character ultimately produces hope. The end result of the suffering is that your soul, your spirit is going to be shaped in a certain way, and the end result of that is that you will know hope. So God is using the circumstances that we go through in order to make... He's driving us to make a choice either we will continue looking to ourselves for our own solutions and then ultimately not finding any stability in that and not ultimately finding any comfort in that, or we will look to God. And if we look to God, God does promise us a brighter future. So here in Isaiah 40, he says, Comfort my people, comfort them. So we're called to comfort we are called to offer hope and encouragement to the world. And we can offer that to each other here in this room. We do that by saying, you don't have to be at war with God anymore. You say, okay, but Pastor Joshua, are taking this verse here, which is clearly speaking to Israel at a particular point in time in which they've been dragged off into exile. The historical circumstances don't quite fit us today as what they were fitting Jerusalem back in this day and age. How, how can we cross that bridge, so to speak, from here, uh, you know, before the coming of Christ to this present day here in the 21st century, many, many years, many thousands of years after the coming of Christ? The very next passage is helpful. It says in verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, if you have read the Gospels, you know before Jesus shows up and begins conducting his public ministry, there's this Baptist that comes ahead of him. John the Baptist. And they come to John because he's preaching repentance and he's baptizing people and it's like a Billy Graham style revival. Everybody's going out into the wilderness, going, leaving the cities behind, going out and finding this guy out in the bush and he's preaching and they're all, they're all repenting of their sins and getting baptized. So these religious Pharisees from Jerusalem, they come to him and say, Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And John the Baptist's response to them is, No, I'm not. They say, Well, we have to give an answer to the guys who sent us, so what do you have to say for yourself? Who are you? What do you what, what, what's your identity here? What do we tell the, the people who sent us? And John the Baptist's response is, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the path of the Lord. And he's quoting this verse right here. John the Baptist is alluding to this. So when God promises Israel that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity has been atoned for, that she doesn't have to consider herself at odds with God anymore, that he's poured out his wrath, ultimately being dragged off into exile cannot solve our sin problem. God uses the circumstances of our life to get our attention. Obviously, when we live in sin, when we engage in idolatry, we can be dragged off into horrific circumstances. But ultimately, no matter what we go through in life, that cannot actually satisfy the debt that we owe with God. When he says to Israel here in Isaiah forty comfort her and tell her that her warfare has ended, tell her that her iniquity has been atoned for, she's received double for all of her sins. He's not saying because you guys got dragged off in exile, now I'm going to forgive you and you can go to heaven. The ultimate comfort comes as promised here through the coming of the Messiah, which for these guys is still many, many centuries distant. He's calling Israel to look forward to Jesus, which means when we offer comfort... We can say to people, your iniquity has been atoned for. Yes, you're going through difficult circumstances. And God is using those circumstances to get your attention. And if you have sinned and lived in rebellion, some of these circumstances that you're going through are His way of disciplining you and chastising you for living in sin and living in rebellion But ultimately, you can still have forgiveness because of what Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago. How do we get that forgiveness? The voice cries out, verse 3, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The call to receiving the Messiah is a call towards preparation. When a great king would come and visit, when a great king would come and enter into a city, If the city knew that the king was coming, they would often build a highway. They would, they would, am I rubbing up on something here? Sorry, sorry, Lydia. They would invariably knock down the hills, lift up the valleys. They'd make a cut through the mountains, just like what we would do here today if we want to build a nice, smooth road. And then the king would enter into that region, come into that district and enter into that city, coming in on a level Road. They wanted to make his journey easy because that was what you did when you wanted someone to come to you. In this day and age, before modern highways and concrete roads and paved uh, streets with lines and all this sort of stuff, travel was hard. You don't want to travel to a city if it's hard to get there. I don't like to travel places if it's hard to get there. I'm a city creature. I I dwell here in Kamloops, and I like paved roads. I like living in town where when the snow falls, they pave it all right away, you know. I have a friend who lives out in the sticks, and the snow falls, and it may be days or weeks before it's paved, and he has to have a 4x4 vehicle to get, you know, to get where he needs to go. Well, nobody wants to go visit him when the snow is falling. Well, nobody wants to come visit a city if it's hard to get into that city. So the call here is to receive Christ. And the metaphor is, in the same way that we would receive a great king by creating a road for him to come and visit our city, we need to prepare to receive the Messiah. All comfort, all encouragement, all hope comes down to this. Are you preparing your heart? Are you humbling yourself to receive Jesus into your life? He says, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The question is, are we making straight paths into our life for Christ to come to us? Some may say, no, actually, I have no intention, no desire whatsoever to bow or to submit my life to Jesus Christ as King or Lord. It doesn't ultimately matter because He is King and He is Lord. And whether you make a straight path into your heart for Jesus, whether you accept Him or not, whether you will humble yourself before Him or not and receive the only comfort that exists, which is the comfort which comes from Christ, Jesus Christ is coming. And everybody's going to see it. Here in this prophecy, we have an amazing promise. Make a straight path. Welcome Jesus into your life. But everybody is going to see Jesus. Everybody is going to behold the glory of the Lord because God has spoken. And that's ultimately the crux of the matter. If I'm going to offer you comfort, you're going through financial difficulty. You say to me, Pastor Joshua, I'm having a hard time paying my bills. I lost my job this last week, and I'm stressed out, and I feel that the bank is going to foreclose on my house, take back my car. It's going to be a financial disaster. And I say to you, don't worry. You're going to win the lottery tomorrow. (laughs) Does that bring you comfort? Don't answer yes. Don't raise your hand. That should never bring you comfort. You're smart people, so of course that doesn't bring you comfort. Of course you wouldn't be fooled or deceived by such an empty and hollow promise. We all know that you can't, you're not going to win the lottery tomorrow. The odds are statistically against it. And if I say to you, don't worry, you're going to win the lottery tomorrow, you're not comforted, you're a little bit disturbed, and you're looking for someone else now to bring you some meaningful comfort. God says here in Isaiah 40, Comfort my people, tell them that there's a Messiah coming. Whether they receive him, whether they make a straight path for him or not, he's coming, I have said it. I have said it. God has said it. Ultimate comfort is based on a knowledge of the future which is actually believable and true. Not some fairy tale pipe dream like you're going to win the lottery tomorrow. God says you will see the Messiah. And that's what his next passage says here. If you look at verse 6, a voice says cry. Now, it's interesting. Time is starting to get away from us. It says in verse 2, speak tenderly, cry to her. We hear this. This uh, emphasis to cry to people, to speak to their heart, to speak tenderly to them uh, about comfort. It's repeated again here. A voice says, Cry. So in the first section, it says, Cry to my people, tell them that their iniquity has been atoned for. And then it talks about the coming of the Lord. Here in this next section, it says, Cry to them. Well, he's just said, Cry to them that their iniquity has been atoned for, they've received double for all their sins, and that they need to make a straight path for the Lord. And then he says to to him again, cry to them, and the question is posed, well, what should I cry? What should I say to them? And you're thinking, he just told you what to say. Make a straight path for the Lord. But this is a beautiful structure to Isaiah 40 in which the prophet is going to ground that assurance solidly on the Word of God. In other words, Isaiah... Comfort my people by telling them that the Messiah is coming and everybody's going to see it. Cry to them. Why why should they listen to me? Why should I cry? What am I supposed to cry? And his statement here is, all flesh is grass. Your life is fleeting. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. He's going to repeat that he says, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it, the grass withers and the flower fades. Verse 8, he repeats it again. The grass withers, the flower fades. Now, verse 7 has said it. Verse 8 has said it. Right between verse 7 and verse 8, this last section of verse 7 says, surely the people are grass. In other words... When Isaiah says, what should I cry? God says, tell them that their life is but a vapor, a mist. It is fleeting here today, gone tomorrow. Comfort them this way. Do you feel comforted by that? He's setting up a contrast. Where you and I are temporary, we are here, but for the blink of an eye, for the twinkling of the moment, something is here with us that is certain and enduring. This is where real comfort comes from. And he says in verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades. Where the people are grass, here in verse 8 he says, the word of our God shall stand forever. This morning, Pastor Ryan made the comment that uh, There are some 300-odd prophecies made about the birth of Jesus Christ. You know, he's going to be born in a particular city, to a particular house, particular family, to a virgin, no less. I mean, some pretty spectacular promises. And someone somewhere had done some sort of a mathematical calculation that the odds of any person perfectly fulfilling all of these prophecies was like one in a quintillion and I'll be straight up honest with you, I never even heard that word until this morning. A quintillion, I think I count as high, I am familiar with numbers as high as a trillion. And then he said a quintillion, a quintillion to try and kind of picture it for you. If all of North America was covered with quarters or coins, and you blindfolded a guy and just told him to walk out and anywhere into all of them, and it was cover, sorry, it was covered with coins like 18, 18 inches, like a foot and a half deep. And you were to tell somebody, you were to blindfold them and say, just walk out anywhere in North America and pick up some coin at random. And the chances of you picking up the right coin, that was one in a quintillion. Well, God has said that his word stands forever. And no matter how far-fetched, no matter how spectacular or how seemingly impossible the odds of him fulfilling it, here in Isaiah 40, what brings you and me comfort is not you and me or any assurances we can offer to each other. What brings us comfort is whatever it is that God says about our future. That is ultimately what it brings. So now we're entering into the third triad. In the first section, he said, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. In the second section, he says, cry. What shall I cry? Tell them that the word of God stands forever. And here in the third section, verse 9, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news. In the first section, we are grieved and anguished because we are carried away into captivity. In the second section, we're reminded that the word of God endures forever, and we should draw our our hope from that. And then here in the third section, We're now told to go out and to proclaim the good news. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Lift it up and fear not. And Jerusalem is the very people that he's wanting to comfort. And Jerusalem is the very people that he says, you need to go out and start proclaiming the gospel. Lift up your voice and fear not. This whole section is intended by God to be bringing comfort to Jerusalem, to these people who have been dragged off into exile, to his promised people. And in this last section, he starts telling them, you need to begin proclaiming this. And I have found that to be true in my own life. A number of years ago, there was a girl that, uh, this is when I was associate pastor at a church in in Texas at Cedar Heights Baptist Church. There was a girl that began to attend our church and she'd had two children out of wedlock, a young mother, maybe 21, 22 years old. She had two kids. She was embarrassed. She was ashamed uh, of the, the direction that her life had taken, her her boyfriend, the father of her children, was not Christian, not a, not a godly man. And here she is faced with the prospect: this man will not. They didn't have any money. He was the kind of fellow that wanted to spend all of his money on video games. Here she is having to provide for two children. She doesn't have a college degree. She doesn't have really the means or the opportunity to get a really good paying job. She's got to provide for two kids. I mean, she's, she's in a difficult situation. And she's grieving for the fact that she may have now placed her family into a life situation from which there will be maybe no escape, that her kids will grow up underprivileged, Poor and without the same opportunities in life that many other kids get. I remember after a potluck lunch one time, I was walking out of the church building with my car keys jingling in my hand and thinking I was going to go home, uh, rest up for the evening service, and as I walked out of the fellowship, the doors, the double doors from the fellowship hall out into the parking lot, I just ran smack dab into her, and she was crying. And so I said, oh, don't cry. Her name was Melissa. and I said, sit down. Let's talk. What's wrong? And she began to pour out her heart and her whole life circumstance and her situation. And I said to her, you know, you have made some difficult choices. And I don't really know what your immediate future will look like. But you need to know that we worship a God that can make miracles happen. If we would turn to him in faith and repentance. I said, the most important question that I need to ask you is, do you believe that God can help you? And her response to me was, do you believe that God can help me? Now that's very, very powerful. If we're going to hold out comfort and hope to a world that needs it. If we're going to say that there's a God in heaven who can work miracles, who can bring joy, even in the midst of the most difficult and painful and trying life circumstances and not necessarily rescue you from those circumstances, but walk with you through those circumstances, and that you will be made so much the better for it. If we're going to hold out that hope, if we're going to hold out that comfort, the question becomes, do we believe it ourselves? The exhortation here in Isaiah 40, God is saying to Israel, don't worry, all your warfare is ended, your iniquity is toned for, make your heart ready, level the playing field so that Jesus can come into your heart, Believe in the word of God and proclaim that good news without fear. Don't miss it. Because when Melissa poses that question to me, and every person I've ever shared the gospel with, this is the critical issue. When seeking to help a person believe in Jesus, to believe that he can make a significant improvement in their life, that he can save their soul. Anytime we do that, we have to ask ourselves the question, we are confronted as people holding out hope, do we believe that ourselves? Remember, Paul is encouraged about the church at Corinth because of what he knows to be true about their future. Paul is encouraged about the Romans because of what they're going to go through. Esau comforted himself about his plans to murder his brother. Okay, that's not necessarily the best way to comfort yourself, to plot evil against anyone. But it hinges on this. If we're going to believe in God and hope truly in his promises, I cannot escape the fact that over and over and over again, one of the ways that he seeks to strengthen us, to comfort us, is to call us to take that comfort to others. Because when we take it to others, we are forced to believe it more deeply, more convincingly ourselves. That uh, African spiritual, Kumbaya, my Lord. There's another song written by Charles Tinley. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me. When the world is tossing me like a ship upon the sea, thou who rulest wind and water, stand by me. In trials and tribulations, stand by me. In trials and tribulations, stand by me. When the hosts of hell assail and my strength begins to fail, thou who never lost a battle, stand by me. In the midst of faults and failures, stand by me. When I do the best I can and my friends misunderstand, Thou who knowest all about me, stand by me. When I'm growing old and feeble, stand by me. When my life becomes a burden and I'm nearing chilly Jordan, O thou lily of the valley, stand by me. The Africans prayed the prayer, Kumbaya, my Lord. This song says the same thing. If we want God to stand by us in our life, if we want to receive the comfort that only He can offer, it happens with three things. Know that Jesus Christ has atoned for your sin on the cross. Receive Him into your heart. Humble your life in faith and repentance. Trust in Christ. Number two, it's based on the certain and sure Word of God, not human invention, not me just telling you good thoughts that you might like to hear. It's based on God's word. And number three, if you really, really want to place your hope in it, proclaim it to the world. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, so much for speaking to us through this prophecy. God, it is at Christmas time in which the whole world is doing just like the Magi, but not quite in terms of exchanging gifts. Lord, we know that the real exchange of gifts was you sending your Son. And we know, Lord, that you sent your Son in order that we could have forgiveness, that we could have our sin and our iniquity atoned for, that we could be made right with you. God, that's the meaning of Christmas. We know it. We believe it. This whole world is caught up in the practice of gift giving. They're focusing in on the giving of trinkets. And they're missing the real source of joy. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people of comfort, that we would draw comfort from you, and that we would hold that comfort out to a world that has largely missed it. We love you, God, and we just thank you so much for this encouraging word from the prophet Isaiah. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.